Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Joe Schober is, as far as I can tell, the longest-serving employee of America Online. He joined America Online shortly after their IPO in 1992, and he left America Online shortly before Verizon bought them. And so today we're going to get basically the entire history of the modern version of America Online from the very earliest days when they were the scrappy underdog against CompuServe and Prodigy to the growth and explosion around the time that the web took off. We're going to talk about the chat rooms, about the AOL Instant Messenger product, we're going to talk about the AOL Time Warner merger. Please enjoy this great conversation with Joe Schober. Joe Schober, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me. So I want to start out with the, not exactly nerd bonafides, but <laughs> sort of uh, the the early tech background and try to find out um, your early experiences online, which I'm assuming were probably with BBSs? Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, just to give some even further back than that uh, background about myself, um, my my house, I'm an only child, my, my parents uh, brought in an Apple II uh, back in, I believe it was 1978. Mm. Uh, when I was uh, five or six, coming up on that age. And uh, I got completely addicted to it pretty much instantaneously. Uh, taught myself AppleSoft Basic early on and then 6502 Assembler and then Pascal and Logo and, and kind of went through the whole thing. I got, uh, as I say, completely enamored in uh, computer stuff. Um, and you know, wrote a lot of programs kind of for my own benefits and got the magazines and all that good stuff. Went to the library, read every book I could find at the library about computer science. Um, and then, yeah, that's, as I said, that was, that was in the late 70s. And then uh, skip ahead a few years um, to the mid-80s. I'm going to say probably circa 84 or something like that. Um, uh, found about modems. And uh, I, I, I kind of, I think, uh, somewhat pestered my parents into investing in one. <laughs> I'm not sure they knew exactly what it was or mm -hmm. what it would be or how much trouble I could get into with it. But uh, we did get one. And as you say, yeah, then I got uh, into the world of uh, BBSing back then. Uh, just here, here's an actual bona fide you can give us. What 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 sort of bod like three hundred? <laughs> like what are, what are you? First doing? one was yeah three hundred bond modem yeah. exactly. And and in fact those that was an era where you would still find some BBSs that would only support a hundred tin bod, which you know very easy to just watch the characters stream across one by one. So we've actually been talking about BBSs a lot lately, but even at the risk of, of repeating ourselves a little bit, um, let's just describe these are these are local uh, computers that you can someone else's computer you can dial into and they share their files. You can uh, do rudimentary messaging back and forth, that sort of thing, right? Right, exactly that sort of thing. I mean, much like you see around the internet these days, you would usually have private messaging, whether it was called email or. or uh, you know, direct message or whatever. You'd have public forums or posts or bulletin boards, whatever you call it, file sharing, uh, usually some games, um, things like that. They were, for the most part, uh, certainly in that era, you'd find that they were on single-line 
um, systems. So it was a single phone line uh, on the, the BBS side, the server side in, in modern lingo um, that would answer the phone and it would just serve a single user at a time, um, which uh, anyone who was familiar with the era would know uh, as users of the more popular bulletin boards, you would set your uh, your computer to dial in on auto redial because you'd often get a busy signal. War dialing, a lot yeah. Of, you'd, yeah, exactly. You'd war dial it. So you'd just leave it dialing for minutes or hours sometimes and, and you know it, it was kind of funny it was almost like a lottery luck of the draw thing because when the previous caller hung up you know there might be 10 people all trying to to reach that uh, bbs at that time and it just became luck of the draw if you were the the lucky one to actually make it through and then get a ring back and connect to the system and so how how deep into bbs's do you go do you um eventually run one yourself or are you just always a user uh, ran one myself. In fact, I, I went far enough. I wrote uh, completely from scratch my own BBS software mm-hmm. uh, for for the Apple II. Um, wrote it from scratch. I ended up actually selling it uh, later on. Sold a couple dozen copies. You know, it wasn't a huge enterprise or anything. What but was, there were what other was the name of the? It. What was the name of the software? Uh, it was eBBS. Mm-hmm. This was in the the innovative time when you just put a letter before uh, BBS, and that was the name. Hey, it works. Um, it still works for Apple it, today. <laughs> it, it, exactly, it's iPhone. Yeah. iPhone. Um, uh, what was interesting was that was around the time uh, you know I was still uh, perusing the library all the time, and I started learning about the internet, which at that time was not even. The internet, really, as you know it today, there were these kind of disparate networks. You had your BitNet and your UUNet uh, interfaces and so forth. So it wasn't quite as uniform and standardized as, as what we have today. Um, but in that era, you, you had the ability to email other people if you knew their their address, of course. Uh, there were Usenet news groups, which still exist today. Um So I got fascinated by that and ended up writing into my BBS software the capability to to participate in uh, Internet activities. So these uh, little Apple II systems now were joined on to what was the Internet at the time and could participate in in Usenet uh, use group discussions, could send email and so forth. So it was actually... um, in addition to just the user experience of suddenly having all these worlds of information and connectivity open to you for my technical career or what was going to become a technical career, it was a great exposure because you have to become familiar with all the protocols and, and the the ways that the rest of the world did things. Um, before, before I uh, – oh, actually, so it's only BBS's – or do you also are you also on like early online services like CompuServe or the Source or anything like that? Uh, I did have a CompuServe account fairly early. That that was back in the days. Again, to put it in a little bit of context, at this point I was a youngish teenager, so I certainly did not have a lot of disposable uh, funding. And I don't remember the exact rate for a CompuServe account, but you know they build you by the minute. Uh, I forget if it was you know ten dollars an hour or something like that, built minutely. So any use I had of CompuServe was sort of a kind of hit and run. I would pop on for a few minutes, you know, kind of with a game plan. It's like, okay, I'm going to grab this file, I'm going to look up this thing, and then I'm going to sign off or send this email, whatever. It had to be very targeted missions. So you didn't have the same experience of browsing the network as as you would uh, when you're on a unlimited. Uh, 
you know, unlimited time, unlimited billing sort of situation. Well, as you mentioned, though, you're a uh, a Mac guy, uh, probably almost exclusively. So I believe that um, our path to AOL begins with um, Apple Link in around 1988. So first of all, tell us what Apple Link was, and then tell us how you got uh, involved with Apple Link. Sure. Yeah, you're you're exactly right about Apple Link. So the company that eventually became uh, AOL uh, at that time was known as Quantum Computer Services, and it was actually a um, a pivot, I guess you would call it, of an even earlier company called Control Video. Their original game plan was um, to basically rent uh, video games for uh, console video game systems like the. Uh, uh, the Atari, for example, uh, you would be able to plug in this kind of special cartridge that could connect over modem, download a game, which you would rent for a dollar a day or whatever the deal was. I don't remember that kind of detail. Uh, and then rent games. Uh, that business, for uh, whatever reasons, uh, didn't really succeed. And it ended up morphing into this other company, Quantum Computer Services, which decided to build an online service called Quantum Link for users of Commodore 64 computers. And they had a, uh, th- this is somewhat before my time. <laughs> Again, I was probably right. 12 at this time. Right, right. Um, but, but I know enough about the history. They actually had a partnership, very smart partnership with CompuServe, or, <laughs> sorry, with Commodore, mm-hmm, one of those mm-hmm. C words. Um, where they did bundles in with the boxes, so you know everyone had the opportunity who had a computer to get the Quantum Link software, the Q-Link software, and get online. So they built somewhat of a community up. But again, in that time, modems were not standard accessories with computers. Uh, there was still that hourly charge involved to get online. Um, so you know it built up. They 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 certainly had a respectable uh, membership base for the time. Um, but you know, it's, it certainly wasn't like being on the internet today. Um, a couple years later, I think circa 87, something like that, they decided to do a similar partnership with Apple computer. Um, Apple did have a limited online service that they called Apple link, which was actually like their developer support system. So it was basically just a a glorified BBS, kind of a large-scale BBS almost, that they would use where developers um, could contact Apple developer support, um, basically get technical support when when building software for the Apple II or for the Macintosh. Um, But Apple contacted Quantum and wanted to do a similar thing for Apple computers for consumer use. And that ended up getting uh, eventually called Apple Link Personal Edition to differentiate it from Apple Link Developer Edition, I guess. Mm-hmm. And it was never called that. It was just called Apple Link historically. Um, <clears throat> but so, yeah, you're exactly right. So I um, was actually brought on by a friend uh, through the BBSing world who had been selected to be one of the original forum leaders on Apple Link Personal Edition. And this was the time when the service was still in beta. And he contacted me and he's like, you know, I can't talk to you in detail about what it is until you sign an NDA, but I'm being associated with this thing that I think you're going to love. And uh, I'm like, okay, I'm in, sure, whatever. <laughs> and uh, exactly, so I got on the uh, the beta test um, 
list for what at the time was called Samuel. That was the, the code name of mm-hmm. Apple Link Personal Edition. I uh, got on that in March of 1988. Um, and so, I mean, to this day, I actually still have that same same account. <laughs> uh, well, 20, you know, almost 30 years old, I guess, at this point. So it, as a beta tester, you're, you're, not ha- you're not being charged by the hour, I'm guessing. Exactly, yeah. All the beta testers got online for free. And uh, at that point, uh, you know, I kind of knew they, they'd said at the time, I'm pretty sure I remember the date was July 15th was when the beta test was going to end and all the billing was going to start. And so I was kind of like, what am I going to do after July 15th? Because it really was at that time, you know, it was a completely different experience. I was very accustomed to BBSing on these single line systems. And I'd had those little brief hit and run experiences on, on CompuServe, but as, as I said before, it's a very different experience when you can just stay around and enjoy it. You can actually talk to other people in real time, you know, via instant message or via chat room, and you're not worrying about the clock. You're not worrying about, you know, how many dollars is this going to cost me to do this? You're just enjoying the experience. And, uh, it was, it was addicting to say the least. So, um, I, I, I tried to find ways to make myself useful. I, I uh, eventually before, the uh, before the beta clock ended, um, joined as basically a community volunteer, helping run different forums and uh, things like that around the service. But that was enough to uh, to net me an overhead account, which is the the internal phrasing for free account. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was that was a wonderful thing at that time. Uh, before we we try to move forward to AOL, just briefly for a second. Um, so they already have message rooms, even at this early stage, um, where you can get a bunch of strangers in a room and they can all talk to each <clears throat> other in real time. Yeah, that's that's correct. They they had chat rooms at the time back then. There were there were actually two kinds of chat rooms. There were normal chat rooms, which could have up to 23 people at a time. And they also had what they called the auditorium, which could handle hundreds or thousands of simultaneous users. But the experience was a little bit different in that the idea of the auditorium was like being in a, in a real physical auditorium where you would have a, a speaker, a featured speaker up on quote unquote stage and you know, possibly with a moderator or, or two. Uh, and they could broadcast out to everyone all the other participants, the audience, you would get put in, I think they called them rows, which was kind of like a mini chat room. So there might be whatever, 20 people in a row or something like that. You could talk, converse amongst your row and you could hear the people on stage, but you couldn't readily converse with people in other rows. You know you know what that reminds me of, obviously, is you know the Reddit uh, Ask Me Anythings, except that actually sounds a little mm-hmm. more sophisticated. <laughs> Yeah, it, it actually worked really well. Um, I, I, uh, I'm blanking right now. I wish I'd thought back on this. I know kind of in, in the heyday of, of AOL, kind of right before things switched over to the Internet, uh, you know, being more mainstream, um, they had some guests in the auditorium with like thousands of, of audience members, like, you know, high profile real celebrities who had come and. And uh, you know, just kind of talk, but yeah, mm-hmm. it, it was it was pretty it was pretty neat technology certainly for the time. All right, so um, uh, one more question on that the so that was that auditorium that you're describing, but then the other rooms are they um, arranged by topic or are they like user created? How did that work? Um, 
Yeah, uh, all of the above. Uh, there were it was kind of interesting where the the system would uh, tend to drop you in right when you logged in was a place called People Connection, and you would just get dropped into a room called Lobby. Uh, sensibly enough. And as the service got bigger, it would be you know, lobby, lobby one, lobby two, lobby 491, whatever. But it was just a lobby and it was just kind of the, well, hi, welcome, say hi to whoever happens to be here. Um, but users could form uh, public rooms just by topic. You would just say, create a name, uh, create a room of which name, you type in a name and you would now show up on a list of public rooms that people could join or not as they wished. You also had the opportunity to have private rooms, um, which would be just you know a, gr a group chat sort of thing, uh, but you had to, to know the name. It wouldn't show up on a list. And then in addition to all that, there were lots of community areas. The technical ones tended to be the more um, visited ones, so Apple II, you know, graphics and sound and utilities and gaming and things like that. Same thing for the Macintosh. Uh, same thing later for the the PC side of things. So, so those those you would usually have weekly or biweekly chats. You know, every Wednesday at 9 p.m. we'll have an, another discussion, and people would come join those. There were also lots of other community areas with similar kind of scheduled events. In fact, at that time, it was it was kind of a neat feature. In hindsight, when when you were logged into the service. There would be these banners. Um, what they looked like kind of depended on your your specific client software. But you know, maybe at eight fifty five, a banner would scroll across your screen saying, "Hey, we're going to be talking about this is not uh, chronologically correct, but we're going to be talking about the latest uh, news in the world of Warcraft universe. Come into the you know PC gaming room at nine p.m." So there would be these like advertisements for different upcoming events. And it gave you, as a user, a menu. Well, you know that actually sounds really interesting to me. And you, you make your way over to that chat room and you know get settled in for the for the nine o'clock start. So they they had kind of that scheduled programming, mm -hmm. and the community leaders throughout the service were kind of tasked with with doing that. You know, coming up with your schedule of interview guests or just open topics or whatever it is, and you make your calendar, you know, weeks ahead of time, and and. Uh, it would all get scheduled in the system and, and appropriately advertised and such. It, it, it was it was a nice environment. It made it really easy to find things that were of interest to you. Well, and 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 what's interesting to me is you know as someone that uh, you know remembers AOL from like ninety three ninety four like that is mm -hmm. still functionally how so like the structure was there in nineteen eighty eight because I can remember you you get dumped into a lobby and there was the people connection and things like that so mm -hmm. functionally by in nineteen eighty eight everything that I remember from the AOL chat rooms are already there right yeah and and actually I, I think most of that even is, is earlier it was it was derived from the the quantum link service so mm. really in the mid eighties I think a lot of that technology was already in place. Okay, so um, in the interest of of jumping us forward, uh, um, <laughs> we'll be here all night. Yeah, take me take me to from there. You're a kid that's a beta tester to in 1992, I believe it is. You you're you become a, a full time employee at at what is now AOL. So how <laughs> take me from A to B? How did that happen? Yeah, how did that happen? So so um, how that really kind of happened was. Um, I was very interested in the technology they were using, <clears throat> so I started reverse engineering the client. 
which uh, I'm pretty sure the terms of service that I probably did not read was specifically said I was not supposed to do. Um, never did it maliciously, you know, and, and I was never a black hat type of hacker. I was always a white hat. I mostly just wanted to see how the thing worked because I found it fascinating. Um, so I started reverse engineering a little bit. I kind of had my own private disassembly of the code. Then, of course, because it's hard to avoid, started making some tweaks to it. <laughs> and somewhere along the line, um, started kind of getting on the radar of the uh, the technology teams over there at, at Quantum Computer Services. In fact, um, one of the kind of a development manager, I, I guess was his title, a guy by the name of Bill Pidlavani. He's actually fairly well known in uh, in the early days internet community. Mm -hmm. uh, he was very active on the service. I mean, he was Bill P. Everyone knew he worked for the company, really nice guy and all. But, you know, he would he would tag me an email or, or instant message sometimes like, what are you doing? I just saw some long message that was had your name attached to it on the on the server side, and and I don't know what you're doing, but don't break it. Um, but I got more and more involved, and I actually started uh, producing um, mod kits that I would distribute that would patch the client software in real time and add new capabilities to it. Mm. And I just started publishing this. Mm -hmm. um, publishing on so AOL I, itself or, or outside? Publishing on AOL itself, okay, right. Yeah. I, wasn't even, I wasn't even too uh, surreptitious about it. Um, got to know the people. It turns out in, in, in what was probably one of the, the more um, lucky coincidences of my life that Quantum Computer Services was based about 10 minutes away from where I lived. They were in Vienna, Virginia. Mm -hmm. I lived uh, just a couple towns over. So I actually ended up becoming personally friendly with the people in the company. Um, when I started releasing these mod kits, I think at first they freaked out a little bit. Like, what is this? What is he doing to my software? Eventually, I think they realized, well, this, these were actually some neat products I was putting out. And they're like, okay, you can do it as long as you put it through our QA department. I'm like, sure, I'm fine. <laughs> we'll do that. And so these 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 things actually got officially QA'd, so I became familiar with some of the QA team. Um, and, and, you know, they let me do my thing. Um, until I turned 18, that was about the extent of it. Once mm -hmm. I was of 18 and of, of legal age, uh, almost immediately I became a contracted forum leader on the service. Uh, I also uh, ended up getting contract work with them. They were looking to do some operating system related updates to the Apple II client software. The whole company at that point had kind of moved on from the Apple II. Like the, the software was literally archived off on tape. Um, I had to, to drag the source code back out uh, on tape uh, and, and figure out how to get it to me. That actually turned out not, turned out to be kind of a dead end project because. They originally cross-compiled the or cross-assembled. It was all assembler code, the code on Stratus Mini computers, which is what they used internally on the host side, mm. which I didn't have access to. Um, you know, it, it kind of uh, didn't end up really working out the way I wanted because they they needed to be able to like exactly reproduce the binary of you know what they'd released. I couldn't really do that. Yeah, you know, it, it didn't work out. It did get me, <laughs> which at the time was kind of a holy grail. It got me the source code to the client software. So that thing I had been reverse engineering uh. for the previous several years. But, you know, at this point, it's kind of like, you know, there's obviously a, a link of trust built between um, myself and, and the company. And so, um, a, as you said, in, in uh, May of 1992, I had just finished a, a, a 
spring semester in college and I went to the um, uh, vice president of development at that time and I just walked into his office. I'm like, do you need any other full-time engineers? And he said, sure, that sounds great. And that, w- that was more or less my entire interview with uh, <laughs> AOL. It was, it was slightly longer than that, a little bit more uh, involved, but really not much more. I mean, I didn't even have a resume or anything. But they, at they, this point, I, I yeah, they knew me they already knew you, for right, yeah. you know a year or two. Yeah, right. And they knew I was I was very familiar with the, the underpinnings of the system. And, you know, I was a, a decent guy. I wasn't you know, going to screw up anything, at least not on purpose. So, um, so yeah, I started in, in uh, May of 1992 uh, at, at AOL, and, and which was so, about three months after their IPO. After their IPO, yeah, in 1992. Yep. Um, so what do you, what do you, what's your job title? Like, what are you working on? Like, what, what do they have you do? Like, what, you know, what's yep. the project? So, yeah, so I, I joined, I think my title was just like programmer or programmer analyst, something like that. Um, I joined the Windows uh, client software team. Uh, at this point, Windows, uh, the prevalent version was 3.0. Mm-hmm. If you've ever used that, right, that's, yep. you know, ugly. Um, but the company did not have Windows client software out at that point. They had a PC, a geospaced product called PC Link, but nothing for, for the Windows environment. And so I joined the Windows team. I think the the internally listed version number of the client at that point was like 0.5. So it came up. It could connect to the service. It could do basic stuff, but there was still a lot of work to be done um, and pretty much across the board. Uh, when I joined, actually, the first task they gave me was uh, automated testing. So there was a, a visual test platform that Microsoft had at the time. And they they wanted to have automated test coverage of the entire client. Um, okay, yeah, no problem. And and that actually ended up by the by the time uh, I was done with it, it was something like a a forty five minute or so test suite. It, it ran through and did exercised pretty nearly every every feature of the client and and gave a, a scorecard of how everything was working at the end. So. We ended up using that every time there were new client builds. We'd run it through the test suite and make sure we hadn't, uh, you know, broken anything. Did a good, or a good regression test of the entire platform. Um, frankly, I think that was probably a uh, a introductory project to make sure I could, uh, you know, settle into the environment and get familiar with it without mm-hmm. breaking any of the core code. Um, within a couple months I was, I was working on the core code. Um, the, the entire client team at that point was, I guess, about five people. Um, and so I kind of jumped right in and it was, it was a, you know, you know, it was completely a startup environment at that point. Um, that was actually, that's exactly what was going to be my next question. So you're describing, first of all. The entire client team for for Windows is five people. Yeah. Okay. So for for the client side, yeah, right, right. Back end developers as well. Yeah. So yeah, just give us a general sort of like uh, macro description of AOL as a company at this point. They've just IPO'd. So what what are they like? It's like a startup, you said. Yeah, it's 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 a lot like a startup. It's. yeah, I, I don't have an exact number for you, I think, mm-hmm. but it was approximately like employee 100, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
of those, call it 100 for the, just for the sake of discussion, 100 people, I would say about 50% of them were in the call center. So they were on site actually taking the support calls from customers who couldn't connect or had billing questions or what had you. Um, and the remaining uh, you know, 50 or so people were spread up. You had the Windows client team. You had the Macintosh client team. Uh, you had some host developers, server developers. You had quite a few people in content creation. Because at that point, you have to remember, a lot of companies did not publish on the Internet. There were some... Uh, it, it was more kind of a curated sort of thing. So you'd actually right. have to go, you know, go out and talk to World Book or, you know, Encyclopedia Britannica or um, Sabre for travel services or whatever the weather provider was. You had to go out and kind of individually curate all of those feeds and usually do all sorts of crazy bridging or something to get that content onto the service. Um, so there, right. was, there were a we lot should, of content people who did that. We should point out that, again, this is <clears throat> slightly before or at the same time that the web is taking off. So you're not writing on web standards. You, you're using your own proprietary system to publish this stuff, right? That's exactly right. And, and even to provide a little bit more um, of background for it, the proprietary language that was used – prior to the Windows client, so on the original Apple II, on Quantum Link, Apple II, Macintosh, and PC Link, was an older version of, of their proprietary language called FDO 88, 88 being you know, the year. Um, <clears throat> the Windows client was the first one to use a next generation version called FDO 91, uh, which turned out to be next generation enough, it survives to this day, uh, 25 years later. Um, so not only was there are this brand new client on this brand new operating system they hadn't used, but all of the content of the service and all of the backend support infrastructure had to be also simultaneously updated to use this new protocol, which was also being developed on the fly. So all the parts were moving all at the same time. And it's some just utter miracle that everyone managed to get synced up and aligned in such a way that all these pieces actually fell together and worked at the same time. So uh, these are going to be a series of sort of now we're, st again, stepping you into the macro questions, which you, you can e speak to from your perspective or say, you know, Brian, I, you know, I, I, I can't really speak to that or whatever. But sure. um, what is what is the vision that is articulated to you of what AOL is going to become or is is trying to become? Like, what is it that you you're told th this is what we're trying to do? Yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm probably going to have a little bit of revisionist history here because this is long enough ago that some of the time frames start getting blurry. Um, but Steve Case had a very clear vision that he always um, conveyed to all the employees, whether he was talking to you one on one in a meeting or uh, you know, kind of an all hands in the, the auditorium or whatever. Um, of it being about content and community. And there was a third C at that time. It, it ended up, I think, morphing into like five Cs. It was like content, commerce, right. community, context, and something. I've seen but, but those it, Cs it, pop up in my research, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it, it made for a, a 
Steve, uh, I don't know if you've had the the the, the privilege of talking. Not show, yet. But, but We're working on it. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, he he is he's very visionary and he's very good at conveying his image of what he's thinking about. And you know, at the time, you know, we were we were certainly eyeing the the competition, right? You mentioned, uh, you know, we talked about CompuServe before, mm-hmm. which was. CompuServe was actually created like so early. It was like 1970 or something. Right, it's actually 68. a little bit insane. 68, yeah. yeah I've had the CompuServe um, founder on, yes. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I saw that on your on your site. Um, so, you know, CompuServe had been around forever and has a, had a very kind of, you know, technical, very computer nerdy kind of atmosphere to it. Um, you know, there was Genie, there was The Source. Those were other similar online services Prodigy. at the time. Uh, well, yeah, so I was leaving that one. I was personally wor- kind of worried um, about Prodigy, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for a couple reasons. One was um, they were backed by, you know, big companies. They were backed by IBM and by Sears, and, you know, they had these big names. And they also were from the ground up, unlike those other services, had this graphical front end on it. Um, but they did have kind of a different take on it, too, which was it was more it was more about selling you stuff, <laughs> you know, there were a lot of, of prodigy. It was kind of a lot about selling you things and ads and, at the bottom of the screen. Yeah. Yeah, exactly like that. And by comparison, Steve always pushed, you know, the community aspects of it, you know, and it even came down to a lot of the subtle details. Like, you know, it, it, uh, they weren't, you know, subscribers or whatever they were our users you know everything was kind of meant to just be friendly and more personal um and not be computery and not be off-putting you know this was supposed to be a service that your mom could sign up for and use and be comfortable with so there's a real conscious focus on mainstreaming it on it not just being for computer nerds Exactly. Not for being for computer nerds. Uh, You know, one of these other subtle details that actually, uh, for reasons we could go into, but like when I started testing Apple Inc. Personal Edition, there were no passwords because Mm. I think that was considered to be too... Um, you know, to computer or whatever. It doesn't mean there wasn't security. Your, Your disk actually had basically a custom password that got changed every time you signed on, you know, just a, you know, secret code or whatever, but you didn't have to know it. It was just associated with your software, but it made it easier to sign on. Um, and, and yeah, everything was kind of with a focus of, you know, this is not intended for technical users. This is intended for the casual computer user, uh, or not even you know, computer almost wasn't part of the term. We, we were always targeting people who were not computer users. They just happened to be using a computer, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, you know, just another one of those random uh, examples was when we shipped the Windows software, we knew people, if you can believe it in this day and age, like didn't even know how to use a mouse. Right. So the icon, it didn't just say, you know, AOL or whatever. It said AOL dash double click to start, you know, which is kind of a crazy name for your application. <laughs> <laughs> But it told people what to do, right? Well, and, yeah, uh, I had was... I had uh, Jan Brandt on, um, and she sure, described yeah. those tests uh, where people would try to use the mouse as like sort of like a sewing machine pedal or whatever. With oh their... yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah, on, on many occasions, and I and I actually I, I listened to your interview with Jan, and uh, I, I had my own share of time in some of the uh, the user survey rooms where we're behind a one way mirror watching. 
uh, as, as you know, people just off the street are trying out different, you know, test test forms, tests, clients, whatever that we had. And yeah, they would do things like that. And we're behind the one-way glass trying not to yell at them like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Don't pick up the mouse and use it like a laser pointer. It doesn't work. But I mean, you know, that wasn't fair of us because it's this device you've never seen before. It's just this plastic box sitting on the table. How are you supposed to know what you do with it? Right. So, right. and that was always the mentality we tried to have with everything we did was these people have never been on the internet before they haven't been on a bbs before they've barely used a computer in any form and we need to be we need to make the environment comfortable for them well and that 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 reminds me of you know the famous example that the um not your screen name but your username on CompuServe was a string of numbers was the numbers with a comma right right whereas aol allows you to choose and personalize who you are on the service right right exactly um, so yeah, I mean, and that was pervasive throughout and, and, you know, we, we were talking earlier about people connection and dropping to the lobby. I think, um, you know, Steve, especially as, as the leader of, of this understood that the connection between people was going to be by far the, the stickiest and most valuable attribute of online connectivity for people in the long run. Yeah, it's great. You can buy a plane ticket. It's great. You can look up something in the encyclopedia, but that's not world changing. I mean, I can call a travel agent. I can go to the encyclopedia in the library. What is what is world changing is being able to talk with people of similar interests around the country or around the world that you just couldn't really do that before in a practical way. Well, that's so interesting that you say that because, you know, early AOL spends so much time and so much money, you know, lining up deals with, uh, you know, Time Warner and this one and that one to provide this brand name content and, and you know, mm-hmm. things with Sabre so that you can do, uh, you know, uh, uh, buy a ticket. On, you're right. Yep. But <clears throat> are they just doing that because they feel like they need that? as a prestige to get people in the door, but then they know on the back end that it's just the people interacting. That's, that's the real juice. Well, I think you need both, right? Because it's difficult to sell a service and say, Hey, pay us $6 an hour to come and talk to random people. You know, (laughs) if you just look at that objectively from a a marketing point of view, and I don't pretend to be a marketeer by any means, you talked to Jan already, Um, but that's a tough sell. I mean, it's easier to say, have objective things that people can say, oh, yeah, it would be cool if I didn't have to drive down the street to the library. I could just look it up in an encyclopedia article. So I think part of it is you have to kind of glom onto people with with concepts they're familiar with and tell them how you're going to make that stuff easier or better for them because that's a very objective thing um that that's easy to 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 think about and say oh yeah i do that today but you can you know make it faster and easier for me cool that's neat that's very different from kind of the the more abstract certainly at the time concept of i'm going to talk to random people around the world that's just such a strange concept today we do it all the time but but in 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 that in that era just going to just chat with people about something you're interested it it just wasn't something people knew about so it's very hard to to rope them in because they didn't have any frame of reference around that well let's let's talk about that if that is the the secret sauce um the 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 interaction of people that in in the end all we really want to do with any of these devices all the way down through snapchat and their ipo today is is just talk to Mm -hmm. each other um 
okay, so it's these chat rooms that um, is AOL's secret sauce. Um, and Part how, of it, certainly. Okay. Okay, so actually quantify that for me. Like, from internally, how much do you guys feel that it is your secret sauce that, like, well, this is what everybody's doing. I, again, I'm not asking you for exact numbers, but how much do you feel like this is our product that we really have to concentrate on is these chat rooms and, and keeping this going? I mean, certainly the chat rooms were a uh, a big part of it. Um, having that environment where people could come together and socialize with one another and form those personal relationships. And now you associate those relationships with AOL. Um even email, because at that time, people didn't have right, email. Right. For the most part, if you wanted to talk, you talk even non-real-time, the average person did not go onto a BBS, certainly did not go onto CompuServe or something. Um, so email at that time was a revolutionary concept. We had instant messages, you know, which work as they do today with, if you still use AIM or, you know, text messages, basically, right? Um, where you can one-to-one uh, communicate instantly with people. Um you know, there, there's probably a good argument that circa 1994, I think it was, when the buddy list was introduced, mm-hmm. which was just providing presence. You know, oh, here's uh, the list of all the people who are on the service right now that, that you know. And suddenly it's kind of like this community, you know, it's like, oh, hey, you know, Bob's here and Bill's here and Lisa's here. Oh, yeah, hey, Lisa's here. I wanted to ask her something. And you just double click. And it's just... It starts becoming part of your life, that that social aspect of your life. And yes, humans are very social creatures, so we like to interact. I mean, that that's that's very ingrained in all of us. Um, that that there's no question in my mind that was that was a huge part of it. A big part of it was the emphasis on making the software not be for technical users. Mm. Um, how, you know, how, how, it, how much it, of it also was I've I've read that maybe strategically like. Uh, focusing on Windows because, like, you guys were almost known as like the service that, like, sort of rode Windows was. As Windows yeah. ninety five comes out and like as Windows you know takes over the world, how important was that that you guys were were super tied to that? Uh, I mean, I think it was absolutely instrumental. It, 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 so much of the AOL success story, I think, was a matter of kind of being at the right place at the right time with the right product offering and then just a little sprinkle of just dumb luck that everything, you know, falls into the right place. But yeah, you're absolutely correct. When, when, um, the, the windows client software debuted at the, uh, windows OS two conference, uh, out in San Jose in January of 1993. And, um, you know, we cut it so close to the wire. I know this personally at that time I was the, uh, had, progressed up to being the, the build master and um, the final GM build of uh, the windows 1.0 software was done Friday evening. Uh, I, I can't tell you the, the exact date, but it was done on a Friday evening. Mm-hmm. We were getting on a plane on Saturday to San Jose to get set up for the windows OS two conference, which was going to start on Monday morning, but we were so late with the software. They didn't have enough time there with the weekend and all to actually get mass produced discs. So they handed us, we, there were, there was a crew at the Vienna office who basically hand duplicated like 500 or something floppy disks with the software. We got the little cardboard mailers like you've probably seen and all the little, uh, 
new user certificates. And at the hotel in San Jose, we had a little assembly line. We had some snacks and drinks. And we handmade the first, like, thousand startup kits of the, the Windows software. It was a great, great fun. Uh, and then, like, a day later, you know, the whatever production company came and dumped another 5,000 on us, and we were set for the show. But, yes, that was that was a big change because there, there was this kind of convergence of several things that happened in the computer industry around then. Um, computers started getting much cheaper. You know, they... they like that Apple II I got originally was, you know, probably two thousand twenty five hundred dollars in you know nineteen seventy eight money. So that's eight to ten whatever. Yeah, that, it's probably yeah. yeah, it's probably ten grand in today's terms, which is you know crazy for a one megahertz forty eight K RAM computer with no disk drive. Um, but by the by the early nineties, you know, the cost of computers was starting to, you know, ease its way down. Um, and you know, a lot of what Microsoft did at the time helped with that. You know, they, they kind of created the, the clone market, the generic computer market, which helps drive uh, prices down. Um, the online scene was starting to sort of form critical mass, um, you know, slowly, but you know, the advent of those things like having access to Sabre for ticketing and, and, Mm -hmm. Uh, Associated Press, you know, was making feeds available, things like that. Um, so, yeah, right in that, you know, 92, 93, 94 time, a lot of things all fell together. But, yeah, you, you still didn't see the immense growth until, really, until Windows 95 hit. Mm. Um, which, partially, I think, that was a matter of software and that Windows 3.1 and 3.0 were really kind of piles of garbage, you know, as far as being reliable in any sense. Um, and and as, as scary as it is to describe Windows 95 as being reliable and usable, it was really a huge leap ahead of, of uh, what the Windows environment had been prior to that. Um, and also, Microsoft, by also jumping into the fray at that point with the Microsoft network, MSN, mm. They helped popularize the concept too, so you know you're getting much more exposure to being online, and um, they're you know, sort of proving know, the market with you, yeah. Exactly, and as I know, uh, you because I did listen to your your conversation with Jan Brand, she was doing a lot of amazing things about putting AOL, you know, doing the the carpet bombing and and just blanketing. You could not turn. You know, you'd go into your own closet, and there were AOL discs, and you're not even sure where they came from. They just materialized there. You know, it was it was it was an absolutely stunning marketing campaign that she ran to make the world aware and 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 get people to put that disc into their computer. Yeah, well, and also, I mean, because obviously at this time, ninety ninety four ninety five, this is also when when the web is happening. So again, I'm going to ask you, just from your perspective, but sure. Um, the coming of the web to AOL, like if AOL is imagining that it's it's going to lead this online revolution, um, and then the web sort of blows up simultaneously. Like reading, you know, because I go to the library, I get old articles from ninety four, ninety five. Like reading interviews with Steve Case from ninety three into ninety four to ninety five. Like it's <clears> almost <throat> like his official position evolves from being something like. Oh, the web, that's not for normal people. Normal people will never use it. They'll use us. To then, okay, sure, the web is great, but 
we're going to be offering better stuff over here to eventually, you know, offering people uh, onto the web through AOL. So from mm-hmm. your perspective inside the company, what, what is the coming of the web feel like inside AOL? Um, I, I, I think the way you just described it is, is pretty accurate and, uh, it is, is kind of the way it evolved. Um, you know, the early web, there wasn't too much in the way of search facilities yet. Uh, we actually ended up buying one of the first search facilities. It was called Web Crawler, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Brian Pinkerton's uh, thing. I think that was 94 maybe uh, that we acquired uh, his company. Yep, I think so. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah um, you know, Yahoo kind of came up with, you know, the kind of more the – the browse the catalog sort of approach. And there were, there were a, a few others in that realm, but you had to work at it. <laughs> you know, it was kind of the reality of it. And, and again, AOL's philosophy at the time was always centered more around our target audience are non-computer people, non-technical people. They don't want to have to work and tinker in order to use this thing. So, AOL provided, you know, a really nice curated set of services. You know, if you want to go find airline tickets, you don't have to think about an URL or searching for it. You just go to our pretty, you know, icon laden main menu and you click travel. I could, okay, I can understand that. And one of the choices on the resulting menu or resulting form will be, you know, buy airline tickets there. You didn't necessarily have, you know, the, the choice. You know, if we partnered with Saber, you got Saber. If you looked up an encyclopedia article and we were partnered with World Book, you got World Book. But the services we offered were all, you know, they were good quality services. They were, in a lot of cases, uh, basically almost every case, we did custom UI over whatever those providers' backends were. Mm-hmm. So it was a UI that was visually consistent with the whole AOL experience, um, which, you know, you don't even get that today, right, on the web. You know, you go to one site and and it has this user experience and you go to a different site and the user experience is totally different. You know, you don't even know, is that a button or a link or is it just static text? No, it, it can be very inconsistent because it's 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 decentralized. Um, whereas we were the exact opposite is, you know, that the term that was always used was the walled garden. I'm sure you've heard that. Right. Um, right. <clears throat> where, you know, it's this beautifully manicured garden. You're safe within these con- uh, confines. You know, we've, we've vetted all the providers for you. You know, we guarantee if you shop through AOL that, you know, you're not going to get ripped off. And, and if you have any problems, we'll help you resolve it. You know, it was all a, a very, you know, I, I, this is probably, I probably shouldn't say this, but like almost like the Disney experience of being mm-hmm. online, right? Mm-hmm. Where everything is just perfect and magical and, 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 and wonderful. And it was, you know, it, it, I, I, I think honestly, if you look back on it, we really succeeded in delivering exactly that. Um, yes. At the same time, you know, the web, you know, prior to this, you know, what's interesting is before the web, I, I think a lot of people think, you know, the web was like the start of the Internet. It really wasn't. There were a lot of things prior right. to the web. You know, you had Gopher, you had FTP, you had, you know, Telnet, you got help. You know, you had all these other ways of getting information. The web was kind of the first, you know, that was designed to be more, you know, integrated you know, kind of an integrated experience where you you know had text and you had media and it, it all you could flow from one to the next in a very cohesive manner. Right. Well, that's interesting that you say that because <clears throat> if you think about it, it's I think I've said on the show before the web sort of becomes sort of like the GUI 
for the internet, sort of like the thing that mainstream right. people it's friendly to in the same way that you guys are trying to be mainstream friendly. That's, that's sort of what I'm, I'm trying to get at is, um, is, was there a sense within AOL that, uh, wait, we've been trying to popularize this online thing. And then now all of a sudden out of nowhere, this thing's come along and is doing the same thing. Was there a sense of like the, the web was a threat or, or, or something that we can use? Initially, I, I wouldn't say it was. We didn't really see it as a threat, and I think the reason we didn't really see it as a threat was we would uh, look at um, what the competition was offering. Where the competition, in a lot of cases, was local ISPs. You know, they'd usually just be a, a local company with a phone bank of uh, you know whatever you know fifty phone lines uh, hooked up to a T one backhaul or something like that, and. People would have to know how to configure their PC, how to dial into this number, you know, maybe set up a PPP, uh, you know, connection in their system, uh, and get modem drivers. And then, well, you've installed the web browser. I don't know where you got the web browser. Maybe the ISP sent it to you on a disk, but you install the web browser, and now you have a web browser. Okay, now what? <laughs> I'm just looking at a you know typer Earl here thing. Mm-hmm. And so, kind of the the at that time, it was a lot of mentality of hmm, this is neat and interesting and, and you know it's kind of nifty technology but is this really focusing on our core customer base that we're trying to target which is people who aren't computer people or is this just going to be another thing like go for like ftp like whatever where you know that's nice that's existed for a while but you kind of have to be a, a cs major in order to use it right and, and at that time, it still felt that way. It still felt like to use the web and go through all those machinations, you kind of had to be a CS major. And by the way, there wasn't that much content available at that time either mm-hmm. because just as we had to drag, in some cases, kicking and screaming these content providers to work with AOL, they weren't necessarily in a rush to go in and migrate all of their content and all their services to this new thing. Right, because oh, the web. Okay, I heard about it. It's interesting, but you're telling me now I have to, you know, re reformat all of my content. Uh, that's a big investment. Let's you know, <clears throat> wait and see what happens with it. <clears throat> right. So we already kind of had that head start. So we didn't perceive it as a huge threat, at least at that point. Um, and one of the telling things, we were certainly not the first online service to integrate like web browsing. Right. Right. Um, <clears throat> I believe Prodigy you know, like, was. Um, that's probably true. Yeah. Um, but at the time, we kind of looked at it, uh, and again, we kind of wanted to make a really friendly experience. So we had um, – it, it actually ended up technologically being a, a, a significant amount of change because – it's like, okay, well, there's these web bookmarks, so we can probably curate some content around that, and you build a favorites list. But we also wanted AOL contents to be to be on the same playing level. We didn't want it to seem like there were these two disparate things. So we actually ended up creating URL schemes for all of AOL's internal content mm-hmm. so that on any given window, whether it was a web content window or a... AOL internal and FDO window, like you could just drag the little favorite place heart into your bookmarks list and it just would work. You know, the user didn't have to know this is a web URL you have to get to in the web browser versus 
a you know an FDO proprietary content sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know even subtle details like that actually can take a lot of engineering under the covers to make it all seem organic and and to flow right and you know be really easy to understand. Um, well, you know, I, I want to bring it back to to what you're doing. So to get us there, let me ask you. I, I feel like we're in like the ninety five ninety six period when AOL, you know, uh, uh, allow uh, allows its users onto the internet. Basically, embraces the internet and and becomes a de facto ISP. Um, is there a moment when you realize that? AOL is not the scrappy underdog anymore <laughs> and is, is, is getting on board a rocket ship that's going somewhere? Um, yeah, I, I, the one, one memory, there, there were a few, a few kind of points in time where we realized that things were, um, were, were going very quickly. Um, one, technological problem that was actually uh i think a couple years before i think it was circa 1994 or so was there was a technical limitation on the host side of the network uh the server side where just to give a a few words of backstory sure um at any time on the server side of things, when a user made a request from one server to the next there was this context structure that was passed uh, across the internal network, um, basically conveying, you know, this is the username, this is their account number, this is their billing info, you know, preferences, flags, you know, just all the sorts of stuff you expect associated with a, you know, a user or online state. Um, And this thing got just pushed across the network. Come to find out, long story short, that they did some calculations and said, well, by the time we get to about like 7,400 simultaneous online users, we won't have enough bandwidth. 100% of the network bandwidth will be consumed just moving this context stuff back and forth, just between servers. 7,400 simultaneous. Simultaneous users. And this was like a major crisis in the company. It's like, what the heck are we going to do? The back end of that time was all based on Stratus mini computers, which were designed to be very highly reliable and redundant uh, transactional machines. Um, but they had their own like kind of networking, you know, from module to module of, of those, those mini computers. And, you know, it was this private network. Fortunately, the, the, the host teams at that time were also migrating to, to Unix. So catastrophe was eventually averted, but that was kind of the first thing, like, you know, we're growing so fast. We're just completely saturating the back backhaul. Only about a year or so later, um, I think it was I think it was Christmas of '95. You can probably find out the details uh, back in, in uh, stockholder reports or something like that. But we had one day where <clears throat> we signed up 75,000 customers, mm. and you have to remember this isn't like signing up for Facebook or something where you just right. give your name and you're done. People were handing over their credit card numbers for this, and basically agreeing to be billed, you know, whatever the, the going rate was at the time. That that's a difficult thing to do. Um, <clears throat> excuse me a second. Sorry. No problem. Um, <clears throat> when I joined the company, there were only slightly more than seventy five thousand customers total <laughs> from the first you know seven eight years of the company. Yeah. And now we're all of a sudden saying in one day there's seventy five thousand customers who signed up. You know, it was like Christmas Day, right? Everyone had just gotten their new computer or just gotten their modem, and uh, and uh, you know we're signing up to AOL because we were the thing, right? 
So that was another one of those moments where it's like, wow, this is, you know, as you said, we're, we're not really the underdogs. We're, we're, we're really becoming the leaders at this point. And, and there were other kind of seminal moments in the history of the company. You know, uh, the, the movie You've Got Mail. It's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, when there's a movie being made that's kind of sort of about your products and your company, you know, that's a thing. Um, and at that time, I would also, we, we got, you know, we had a ample supply of clothing from the company. So you'd have plenty of T-shirts and jackets and such labeled with AOL. And I could not go anywhere in public uh, without someone stopping and saying, you know, either I love AOL or, you know, I have this problem. I tried to get online. I couldn't. And the crash, you know, <laughs> one or, one way or the other. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just coming up about it. Let's it's like oh, this is like a thing. Let's let's get into that. Let's get into uh, however much you want to tell me about uh, the America on hold period. <laughs> when <laughs> when you guys go um, uh, to unlimited usage and um, the the usage explodes. It does. Yeah. Um, you know, which is, you know, I, I had talked about it in the context of, of my own experience, you know, years earlier where, you know, I didn't really have the money to be going and forking over, you know, $6 or more an hour just to be yakking it up with people on, on an online service. Um, you know, I'm sure a lot of other people had the same, same philosophy. And then all of a sudden you, uh, you say, well, we're not going to be charging by the hour. It's just, you know, 20 bucks an hour or a month, excuse me, uh, to get in. And, um, it, it, it was, it was, it was a completely radical change, uh, throughout the company. Uh, mo- most of my career at AOL was on the client side of things. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of, thankfully, I guess, um, I didn't have the direct exposure to dealing with that, you know, with, a, a with lot the of ba- the, with the back end that would have to deal with this, Intense. Exactly, yeah, okay. exactly. The back end, um, the, the network team, you know, being able to provision up um, the, the partnerships with the, the, the dial-up providers um, to ensure there were enough phone numbers to get into, because that was the thing, right? You would call in and you would just get a busy signal or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, the network and operations teams did an amazing job of, of, of actually scaling that up on, in, in a fairly short time. You know, Jan, Jan almost, I think she said, it's been a while for me, but uh, I think she said that she almost um, uh, advised against doing it. Do, do you remember, were people in the network team, were people, were technical people saying, I don't know that we can do this? <laughs> Yes, I, I mean, I, I definitely heard that. Um, uh, you know, I, I I know because I actually just listened to your interview with Jen uh, a few days ago. Um, she had mentioned Matt Horn, who was the the vice president of operations at that time, and uh, he and I shared an attribute. We were both night owls. Um, you know, we would be in the office at two, three, four in the morning or whatever, and. Um, Matt's like the nicest guy on earth. Um, so even though he was a VP, I would just swing by his office uh, in the evenings, you know, maybe on my way out or whatever. And he would stop into his office and, you know, every square inch of every wall was a whiteboard and completely covered with notes and plans. And, you know, he would just be going a mile a minute, you know, trying to figure out the 10,000 uh, different things that had to be accounted for to make everything work for this transition. And, and, you know, you, you could tell, I mean, this is, this was a huge and massive risk really to the company, both financially and operationally. Um, 
and you know even though there was that america on hold period of of uh, you know being the butt of everyone's jokes uh you know i think it was absolutely mandatory for the the ongoing success of the company mm-hmm. because if we didn't do it someone else would have in fact others did obviously at that point and um you know there would be and that coincided not not coincidentally with the growth the 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 maturity of the world wide web as a viable source and all the stuff i had talked about as being kind of like you know before is like well that's you know that's a lot of hoops to jump through to get your computer connected and and online and then i don't know where to go and all that it it didn't take that long for those problems to fall away and it it become a more viable uh solution for the average uh customer to to you know just go with a local ISP and a web browser. So we did not want to lose pace with that. So through the, through this period that we're talking about, uh, I guess we're into 96, 97, um, yeah. you're, you're working on uh, the client side still, uh, developing the, the new iterations of, of AOL's uh, software? Yeah, yeah, I was. Actually, uh, I, I, went through a, uh, I went through a couple of... of uh, diversions along the way there. Back in 93, I actually created the Newton Mail client mm. for, for Apple's Newton device. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, it was, that was kind of interesting. And, and you know how the, the Newton story ended up. Yeah, it wasn't, yeah. wasn't one of the more successful stories, actually, but it, it was interesting to be involved with it. So again, that was kind of an offshoot of uh, AOL's relationship with, with Apple and the Apple Inc. personal edition uh, you know, thing. Um, <clears throat> and then Actually, the following year, I uh, was working on a client for a company called General Magic. I don't know if you right. remember them. Yes. They were a spinoff of Apple right. uh, that produced what they called mobile communicators, which were about the size of a paperback book and uh, really ahead of their time. I mean, mm. kind of functionally, you know, well, if you put it in context of the era, you know, they were smartphones. Right. But PDAs know, or, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, they did, I guess, maybe a little better than Newton did. A, a lot of those, you know, I, I have so much respect for the the people and the technologies involved with those things. I think it was one of those cases where, for those products, the the technology and the concepts were ahead of the like the available hardware in particular, or the you know? infrastructure. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, so uh, I had those diversions, which were interesting. Uh, certainly. Uh, getting exposed to what others were in the industry were doing. And then when it came back off of uh, that stint working with those other companies, I was still an AOL employee, you know, just, just offsite. Um, uh, for about three years, about 95 to 98, I was tasked with uh, managing and, and, and architecting uh, an SDK product for AOL. Mm. So we were actively reaching out to other companies saying, Hey, um, you know, why don't you do a tight integration with AOL, um, you know, which, which served multiple things. It, it allowed these companies to have a richer experience um, and provide a richer experience to the end users. Uh, and it also made AOL stickier, you know, to, to customers who might want to switch. Well, yeah, but then you're giving up this product and this product and this product. Um, in fact, one of the, the, the ones perhaps most interesting integrations at that time was uh, Intuit, you know, the company that's kind of known for TurboTax and, mm-hmm. and Quicken, they had a product called BankNow, which was an AOL exclusive at the time. And as the name implies, it was probably one of the first like online banking things. Um, 
it was a tight integration with the AOL client software, and you could go online and with a very select number of banks, a couple dozen, I think, at the time, you could do online banking. And you know, we ensured you know secure end-to-end connectivity and 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 all that. And it was a very nice integrated experience with uh, uh, you know with the AOL client again, and just you know very seamless for for the non-technical user. Um, sorry. Oh no 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 go you... on. No, 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 go on. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, that was what I did through about 98. And then uh, starting uh, around 98 or so in, in the late 90s, um, I at that point, I basically was one of, uh, of a couple chief architects of the entire client software experience. Um, my key my key focus at that time was actually on the connectivity infrastructure. Um, so it became very obvious at that point, although at that time we were still basically a dial up service or you could use native IP if you had it, you know, from your company or your school or whatever. Um, but it became really obvious the dial up was not the wave of the future, right? Um, we didn't quite know what the wave of the future was, you know, was it going to be ISD and was it going to be cable? Was it going to be satellites? You know, who knows? Um, but it became really obvious we needed to get ahead of that wave and make sure that our infrastructure was able to support whatever thing, uh, whatever connectivity infrastructure was coming down the pike. Um, and so that was a lot of my focus um, kind of through the late nineties into the early two thousands, um, which was a really good thing because the, the timing actually worked out great because yes, that was starting to get into the era where, yeah, you could actually get cable service from your, your local provider. But yeah. even then it wasn't clear what form that came in. Um, at that time, AOL was starting to offer AOL branded connectivity, you know, where, where we, we would basically buy time on the local, cable providers or by time on the local phone uh, company lines, but it would be AOL-branded DSL service or AOL-branded cable service. Right, which um, is part of the motivation for the Time Warner. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, right. Well, okay, yep. okay, hold on. Before we get to that, um, I don't know if you can uh, give perspective on this at all, but something you said earlier about how like there were already status updates or something or there was already uh, uh, buddy lists – um, mm-hmm. If you can clear up for me, I thought that AOL Instant Messenger AIM grew out of the ICQ acquisition. Um, to no. whatever, okay, okay. To whatever extent you can tell me, <laughs> it, it, explain to me how what we know of AIM, the hugely popular product of the late '90s, early 2000s, how that evolved. AIM was actually an internal effort to completely rebuild from scratch the infrastructure of the service to work on scales of millions and tens of millions of users. Um, The original, like we talked about a little earlier, the original um, platform around AOL, especially on the backside, where the Stratus mini computers on their own private networks, you know, a few thousand simultaneous users was great. You started getting up in the seven, eight thousand range. They started choking. You know, there was hacks and workarounds around all that. Um, but there was this realization: well, 
yeah, this is 1994, 1995. That's all great, but this is going exponential. We can't be talking, you know, to go from 7,000 to 10,000. That's the wrong thinking. We need to be thinking, how do you get a million simultaneous users? How do you get 5 million simultaneous users? So AIM actually started as a <clears throat> largely host side, server side, um, rethinking, rebuilding uh, around... Um, Unix-based backends, hmm. as opposed to you know the Stratus proprietary thing that no one knows anything about, um, <clears throat> with new designs for internal um, server topography. How do you ensure that servers stay up 24/7, 365? You know that wasn't a thing in the OL uh, classic era. Like the service would go down every day at three o'clock for three hours, just for routine maintenance. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you, that's, you know, that's fine at that time. But if you think about it long term, you don't want people to be deprived because, by the way, three o'clock in, in the morning Eastern, which is where AOL is based, okay. is only midnight in California. And, you know, when you're suddenly yanking the, the rug out from people at midnight, they're not going to be happy about that. Okay. So it's like, well, how do we develop a whole new infrastructure that allows, um, you know, servers to be shut down and they're their contexts all migrated to another server so we can do a software update or a hardware update on that. You know, it's all, all of these things related to massive scale and massive uptime. That was really kind of the genesis of what AIM was. And it was this new infrastructure that could be created alongside of AOL. It was from the start an IP-based technology. And... You know, instant messaging is a great application. We figured, well, no matter what people are doing with encyclopedias and plane tickets, <laughs> everyone wants to talk to their friend. <laughs> so that idea of presence, uh, and I'm not talking about gifts, I'm talking about, you know, being being there, on being online and being right. seen, um, and talking with one another, uh, and, and, you know, the buddy list concept, so you can see who else is hanging out uh you know, in your virtual universe with you. Those were all the concepts that were like, okay, this is, this is where we you know, want to start with this uh, new infrastructure that's, you know, designed for the internet age, that's designed for the always online age, the, uh, you know, the permanently connected age where the server never goes down as far as the user is concerned and, uh, and, and can scale to essentially infinite numbers of people. So that was the genesis of AIM. We, we acquired, ICQ, I forget, 97 or something mm -hmm. like that. AIM, AIM had already been in service for a while. And uh, in fact, it was kind of a, a pain in the neck to to uh, integrate ICQ into the platform and allow, you know, AIM to, to ICQ bridging. Okay, so wait, uh, you, you, you bridge ICQ to AIM, but it's not like you bought ICQ for the technology because you already had AIM functioning. Yeah, you know, I, I honestly can't tell you. I, I, I yeah, kind of yeah. always wondered why we bought ICQ myself. Uh, um, <laughs> you know, I, I think it was just to, as much as anything for the the member base. Um, you know, they were based out of Israel, if I'm remembering it correctly. Yeah, yeah they were. And they had kind of a completely different um, audience base, basically. I think there was fairly little overlap of, of ICQ users with AIM users. And 
just my guess, and I'm not going to you know, swear to this or anything, but my guess was it was just trying to just in one fell swoop kind of greatly extend the, the reach of our audience base. Mm-hmm. But I, I kind of always wondered about the ICQ acquisition myself. <laughs> Uh, just, uh, just an aside. Your your microphone's gotten a little muddy there. Oh, oh yeah, sorry. Um, Is this any better? Yes, much better. Yep. Uh, Take a okay. Step to the left. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, but what's interesting? So then, and and we'll we'll leave this in a second. We'll 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 go quickly to the Time Warner merger. And, and and please, if I if I've taken too much of your time, let me know and we can wrap up now. But oh no, I'm I'm good. Okay. Um. The. <sighs> The thing that's fascinating to me is that the idea that's so central to social, this notion of the social graph, you know, yeah. like mapping out your, your connections, um, is right there at the root of AOL where it's just like, well, you would want to know who of your friends were online at the same time you were. Right. And so that's the social graph right there in its most basic form. It's it, but the, the the issue is it's it's right there in a world before everyone's online all the time. Correct, but they were starting to go that way certainly, and, and you know it, it, it's sort of a chicken and egg thing, right? You're not going to hang out online if your buddies aren't online. <laughs> um, but you know, as more and more people crept online, uh, you know, largely through AOL, you know, AOL gets a lot of, uh, you know, it, it's the butt of a lot of jokes, um, you know, internet on training wheels or whatever. Mm-hmm. But the reality of it was at that time the vast majority of people who were online anywhere were online through AOL. Um, you know, they may have migrated elsewhere later, but that was the, that was the gateway for, for a lot of people to get online. And so, yeah, building that social model was critical. And, you know, what drives me crazy to these, to this day is how many technologies that are now taken for granted that we actually had 20 years ago. Like you and I are talking on Skype right now. Uh, you know, it's a nice audio conversation. It's easy. It was about 1995, 1996 or something that uh, I remember seeing a demo using AWOL Instant Messaging where you just click an icon, a little speaker icon or whatever mm-hmm. it was, and you know it just took care of the magic just like on Skype, and suddenly you were having a voice conversation with someone. That was 20 years ago. Um, you know, same thing for video. Um, you know, same thing with profiles, <laughs> you know, stuff that, that, you know, could easily have turned into Facebook or, or status uh, updates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. In fact, on aim to this day, you can set, uh, your current mm-hmm. status, mm-hmm. you know, there's like plugins and you can, it can be your, you know, your current music that's playing in iTunes or whatever. You, you can do that. You know, all these concepts and, and, you know, we, we had an amazing amount of technology and an amazing infrastructure and, uh, you know, I, I think it's a shame that a lot of it kind of got lost for, you know, any number of reasons ranging from, you know, just bad timing to, you know, not someone deciding not to take the risk to, you know, whatever. But, or not, uh, or not dr- putting enough uh, uh, wood behind those arrows or something. Yeah, yeah right. Exactly. Well, yeah. actually, you made me think of something. Um, uh, I started out this podcast interviewing a lot of the early Netscape guys, and, and, mm-hmm. and they did – a lot of them say that, you know, oh, fighting Microsoft was hard, but being bought by AOL was the worst. So you made me, you made me remember that, <laughs> um, the sense that the, the tech world, especially on the West Coast, did not necessarily respect AOL, thought yeah. it was Internet on Training Wheels. Did you guys feel that? Did you guys resent that? Um, 
<laughs> That's an interesting. We definitely felt it. I mean, there, there's no question that that we were aware of that perception. Um, you know, all you had to do was go on to almost any uh, Usenet news group in the mid '90s, and it wouldn't take you long to find. You know, someone say, "Oh God, the AOL people are here." You know, as, as what they thought was their you know, uh, you know, private sacrosanct space was suddenly being invaded by these, you know, thousands and tens of thousands of new people. Um, so yes, we felt that. Did we resent it? Um, I don't know. I, I can only speak for myself. Um, but I mean, I, I think I took pride in it in a way. It's like we, we made something that's actually massively complicated, really simple. And it, worked clearly because we did have tens of millions of people who use the service every day or every week or whatever. So we accomplished our goal. <laughs> um, you know, if, you know, it's unfortunate that some people considered it to be a negative that we made something difficult easier. Um, you know, you, you kind of hear the same arguments even today, right? You know, there's whatever Apple just sold 80 million iPhones in the last quarter or something like mm -hmm. that. Um, but, you know, you'll hear certain people from the Android um, contingent saying, well, you know, the iPhone's crap because, you know, I can't, you know, tinker it and I can't overclock it and, and you, know, you know, flash a new ROM on it like I can on my Android phone. Which is all true, but it's serving a purpose that's really good for a lot of people. And, you know, so I, I think today and I th and I thought, you know, 20 years ago when we were getting poo-pooed as the Internet on training wheels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, OK, maybe this isn't a solution that's right for you, whoever's speaking, but it's a great solution for a lot of people. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Mm. I, um, well, I'm, I'm thinking that you might not have cared at a certain point because there was at a certain point it was almost like you guys were the most powerful company in technology by the way i'm trying mm -hmm. to i'm trying to bring us home here so don't, don't think <laughs> no I'm, I'm settling in for another hour but um <laughs> so at some point you guys are the biggest and most powerful company in tech um i'm talking about like at the height of the bubble when the bubble's bursting and and so Again, not from the boardroom perspective, but from, you know, the ground level perspective. <clears throat> when uh, the AOL Time Warner merger is announced, is, is, is rumored, happens, whatever, um, what are you guys thinking? <laughs> like, uh, 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 we're going Hollywood or <laughs> now we're in the big time? What's happening? Um, well, I remember at the time thinking... Because uh, if you look at the AOL stock price at that time, it was stupidly high. <laughs> I mean, we were splitting the stock like every three months or something. It, it was it was insane. And, you know, at, at some point, you know, you look at it and you're like, this is just funny money. I mean, how are we valued this high all of a sudden? And kind of in my mind, we pretty much at the peak of our stock price, cashed out that stock for real assets. It's like, oh my God, all of a sudden now we have, you know, real magazines, we have real, um, you know, movies, we have real TV channels, we have, you know, we have all of the stuff that we just paid funny money for, monopoly money for. That's got to be awesome, right? <laughs> and 
you know, I still kind of think to this day in, in an alternate universe where there weren't, you know, political clashes and, and company culture clashes and things like that, I think it really could have been absolutely an, an amazing merger. Mm. Uh, and clearly that didn't happen, uh, you know, obviously. But I, you know, as, as you, you uh, I forget what word you just used a minute ago, the bubble bursting or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um Something was going to happen, <laughs> right? Um, you know, we from a from a purely corporate point of view, the stock couldn't just keep going up and up to infinity. That was going to come crashing down as it did. Um, our at that point, you know, the the vast majority of AOL's business was still basically being a dial-up ISP. Right. Okay. And, and so providing content with it that get, wasn't going to go forever. <laughs> I was going to say. Okay. So again, you're not in the boardroom, but how yeah. cognizant are people that hey, listen, there's this next era coming, that's not going to be 56k dial up. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. How you, you guys? Uh, you feel like the company was 100 percent aware of that and was was plotting to like get to a lily pad as soon as possible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I mean, from from my my technical viewpoint in the late '90s, you know, I saw you know dial up. This is great, you know, and we had a we had a spectacular infrastructure code wise for you know dial up support. But I'm like, well, that, this isn't going to last forever because why would you use dial up if you can get you know a cable connection or a satellite connection or whatever it is? You know, one of these is going to win out. Uh, and you know, from a technical point of view, like I started leading, you know, my team on the let's let's build a new infrastructure that isn't dial-up centric, and, and it was happening throughout the company. I mean, just going to like broadband changes everything, right? Um, mm-hmm. Having richer content just opens up you know whole new worlds. Um, but the concern there at that time was, well, yeah, but. How are they getting that richer content? Is it through AOL? Well, no, it's probably not because we're the dial-up provider. And, you know, I had mentioned, yeah, we were doing some partnerships to to have AOL branded DSL service or AOL branded cable service. But at that point, we become just an extra layer on top of the the company who's actually providing it, right? I mean, Verizon has your phone line, or or right. um, you know, Comcast has your cable line, or whatever. Now we're just this extra thing on top. Well, well why and, why wouldn't the customer just go with the the underlying service? Even at so, home, yeah. had that same problem, <laughs> you know, and they started out yeah. as a as a oh, yeah. broadband company. But like, why do you need at home if you're just Comcast, <laughs> right? Exactly, that's exactly right. Yeah. So yeah, no, I think there was a lot of realization about that, but the world was uh, the the internet world was changing um i I say internet world it was becoming the internet world right i mean Mm -hmm. uh the 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 walled garden that made so much sense in you know the mid to late 90s made less and less sense you know at this point every computer came with a web browser built in you know so that was standardized google existed at that point um you know, all, all the kind of barriers to entry that you had before, one by one, were falling away. And so, yeah, I, I definitely think there was a, a realization, uh, you know, amongst everyone at AOL that there's a a big shift coming. You know, the, the, the dial-up walled garden is not going to be king of the hill for much longer. And, uh, you know, then, then the tough question becomes, well, what do you do about it? <clears throat> Well, and they tried. It didn't work out. Did you? Did you personally? You mentioned um, 
like sort of this culture clash, this infighting. Did did you personally, as an as an engineer, as a as a technical person, experience that in, in <laughs> direct ways? I, I I mostly did not, to be honest, because in this that time I was still I, I was chief architect on the client software. Um, so I dealt with, uh, you know, I, I dealt with the, the, the host side and the operational side of AOL routinely, but I, I had that extra layer of isolation between myself and, and for example, the network team talking with the Time Warner cable team. So I, I had minimal interactions with that, uh, cross, cross company, cross culture, uh, chasm, um, so while I was certainly aware that it wasn't a smooth integration, it didn't really affect me on a day-to-day basis. Well, in the interest of, of, <clears throat> of letting you go, because I've taken so much of your time. Oh, that's um, no problem at you, all. You stay, you stay with AOL um, through the merger, um, yep. through AOL uh, going independent <laughs> – Again, yep. <laughs> being spun Again. out. Again, yes. Yep. Um, and uh, through the whole patch media thing, uh, mm-hmm. the, the, buying Huffington Post, TechCrunch. Um, now it's owned by Verizon. Um, did you leave after Verizon uh, purchased AOL? No, no, I left uh, a little bit before the okay. Verizon uh, acquisition happened. So okay, well, uh, actually, so and I mean this in no negative way whatsoever, but I'm just <laughs> curious. Um, why did you stay so long? We, I think you probably are the longest-serving AOL employee. Um, why? Why did you choose to stay through all those different regimes and owners and directions? Um, I loved the company. I loved what we stood for. I loved the people I worked with on a daily basis. Uh, you know, even even you know well after it was a you know fortune you know whatever 50 company or whatever we ended up being we still had a lot of that startup feel i mean there were still nerf gun wars in the hallways and foosball tables and pinball machines and you know late night pizza run you know all that stuff that that is so much fun and and you build really that uh that rapport uh, with your coworkers. It's not just nine to five and, you know, you clock out and it hits five and you forget about it. It was, it was part of our lives. Um, you know, I, I ended up spending, uh, you know, still a, over half of my life associated with AOL. Um, you know, I met so many great people through the company. It was um, a, a great career opportunity for me. Uh, you know, I believed in the mission. Um you know, that mission morphed to a lot of senses. And, and yeah, I'm not going to tell you I'm as happy about, you know, to a large extent these days, uh, you know, AOL's in the business of selling advertising. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there, there's, of course, a lot of content creation. Like you said, you know, Huffington Post alone is a is a big content farm, and there's, you know, Engadget and TechCrunch and all that. But it it feels more like you know it's it's just you know big media company now so you know it, it, no it's not the same feeling as it was but um you know right up to the end i i loved the people i worked with uh and i loved what i was doing and and it's it's always great to work on anything where you're touching in some way you know tens or hundreds of millions of people right um i live in the the washington dc uh, metropolitan area where you know vast majority of of the um, jobs you're going to find in this area are a lot of things you know in the government or the military or you're just a cog in a huge machine 
and um, you know you don't really have the the ability to to impact lots of people, you know, lots of you know consumers, real people like you, in, in some positive way by making their experience a little bit easier or you know, coming up with some cool new feature that's, you know, people just love to use. That's really exciting for me. I love to be able to have that kind of consumer facing, uh, work that I can do. And, uh, you know, AOL was a fantastic place to do that. And, uh, you know, I'm, I, uh, I don't agree with everything the company did or all the directions that were taken, of course, but I have nothing but the best things to say about my career as a whole there. And, uh, you know, everything I got out of it and, you know, hopefully, uh, uh, you know, some of the work I did, you know, was, was, uh, was positive for people who used it. <laughs> well, actually I, 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 that'll be my final question. I have two more questions, <laughs> Okay, <laughs> but I, 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 the, the, what you, what you contributed will be my final one, but the second to final one, the penultimate one, <laughs> um, people are always shocked to hear that something like 2 million people or whatever are still paying for AOL <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. Dial-up service. Um, I've seen you say this in other places, so I'm going to ask you to repeat yourself. But uh, basically, uh, two million people still paying for dial-up. It comes down to what, essentially? Um, it's probably a combination of things. Uh, some of it, I think, is inertia, um, where they may not even know they're paying. You know, so many people get their credit card bills. Just kind of glance at it. If you know, if it's not ten thousand bucks more than they thought it was going to be, it's close enough. They sign the check or whatever. Um, some people think that if they want to keep their AOL.com mail address, which they've had for twenty years, and that's how they talk to their kids or whatever, that they have to pay us. Which I know the membership teams frequently send out emails like, "Hey, you know, we see you're coming on a cable connection. You're eligible to switch to the free, you know." You know, free AOL accounts, you know, keep your mail service and everything you love about AOL, but you don't have to pay us anymore. And strangely, they just keep this, you know, keep paying for the subscription. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the membership team does try to, to add other value to that. So there's all sorts of ancillary benefits they've done through partnerships. So even the people who don't use dial-up anymore do get value out of the uh, the subscription. Um, I know a certain number of people do um, do keep it for travel to weird places. Um, you know, there are certainly in some other countries, we still have a pretty massive dial network. Hmm. Um, and, you know, you can go to some boonies place and probably still find a dial up, uh, you know, access number. If you want to get online, it'll be slow, but it's more than fine. If you just want to, you know, send some emails or whatever. Um, so there, there's a lot of reasons why I think there's, there's still all those people there. All right. Uh, then I promised final question is, um, (laughs) You, you you describe the the derisive term training wheels uh, for the internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I've said on here before. There's another way to look at it, which is it's actually helping people and training people how to live online. Yeah, which now twenty twenty five years on is more important. And I'm thinking of like what we what we described as you know like you know the proto social and like your <clears throat> social graph and the status updates and things like that. But I'm also talking about like um, people having an online identity and learning what that means and mm-hmm. learning how to do that. So looking back on it uh 20 25 years however long since you started at at AOL um 
just what you think about the legacy that your work and that AOL in general uh, did in terms of of shaping the modern culture and shaping this 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 hybrid <laughs> online yeah. cyber culture that we all have today. I'm 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 certainly immensely proud of what everyone in that company through that era did. Um, you know, you asked me why I was there so long. One of the reasons it was an unbelievably fantastic team of people across the board, across all of the technology, across marketing, and uh, you know, up to the the executive team. You know, certainly. You know, Steve Case, you cannot hope to work for a better, uh, you know, CEO or a better boss. Um, <clears throat> but um, I'm I'm immensely proud of what we did. You know, it, it would be foolish to say that if we hadn't done it, it wouldn't have happened. That's just not a true statement. But like I said a, a couple minutes ago, like personally, I take a lot of satisfaction out of being able to provide an experience that everyday people care about um, and that affects their lives, hopefully in a good way most of the time. You know, nothing is ever 100% perfect. So you had, you know, you'll have people coming to complain to you that my client crashed or I had a busy signal or whatever. But I think we did something really positive. We, we, we were, were fortunate enough to be the company that for, you know, tens of millions of people was the gateway to this thing that we now call the internet that, you know, these days people, you know, they'll, they'll say, you know, you take anything away, you can take away my TV, you can take away my food, you can take away sex. I don't care. Just leave me my, you know, my internet connection. And and it's that much of, uh, of, of people's lives today. And I'm really proud that for tens of millions of people, we were able to introduce them in, you know, generally a really friendly and and safe and, and positive way to all the cool stuff that could happen on this medium. And, um, you know, it, it's, uh, that's really a once in a lifetime opportunity. You know, there's, there's not, I, I think no one, no one could realistically dispute that the, the creation, the popularization of the internet is a major event in cultural history. You know, it, it's just such a, a game changer for everyone, every industry, every person. Um, and, and being able to be part of that is just, you know, it, it's amazing. You, know, you look back and you say, I did something really cool. And yeah, I was one piece of this huge, awesome team. Um, but you know, it, it makes me really proud. It, it, it's I'm I'm proud personally. I'm I'm proud of what AOL did at that time. And uh, you know, like I said before, I, I I take no I take no offense myself in the Internet on Training Wheels, you know, moniker or whatever. I that's exactly what we were trying to be. And you know, everyone who rides a bike has pretty much is on Training Wheels, and that's how you learn how to ride a bike. And that's how we taught people how to be on the Internet. Um, you know, it would be awesome if you know. Um, in the you know two thousands era, if, if uh, things had played out a little bit differently, we could have easily been, you know, the Google, the Facebook, the Skype, uh, you know, the PayPal, uh, you know, lots of those other things that we had actually dabbled in. We could have been in all those places, um, and it didn't work out that way. But um, you know, I, I think we were a, a big and 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 generally positive uh, force on 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 
the industry and in the world there. So I, I you know, I, I, I look so fondly back on, on those times and, uh, you know, wouldn't certainly wouldn't trade it in for anything. Well, uh, Joe Schobert, thank you. First of all, <laughs> I've I've said uh, to several people that I feel so remiss that AOL has been so so far underrepresented on the show. Um, <laughs> but so thank you for for adding <laughs> AOL oh. story to it. But also, yeah, my pleasure. Um, uh, basically, thanks for thanks for building the training wheels, man. Oh, uh, thanks a lot. And uh, again, it's it's quite an honor to be asked to come on. So I uh, uh, really appreciate you uh, inviting me. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening. <laughs>